0: I'm going to give a little word of disclaimer. I forgot to bring the DVD this morning. So for those of you who like the DVD, I'm so sorry. I I was confused. We had the she had the DVD from part one, and in my head I thought she has the DVD, and it, I didn't bring the DVD part two. And then <laughs> Yoshiko and I were like ah, having a conversation about this earlier, and I went, "Oh yeah, she's got it. She's got it," but she doesn't got it because I forgot it. So I will get it. Miss Lisa will be teaching next week, AM and PM, yes? Yes. I'm so excited. It's gonna be a whole week excitement for me. Yay. <laughs> so just telling you now, be all week. I'm excited too. I'm so happy Lisa's gonna be doing. It. I'm so thankful for her and I'm so thankful for uh, Martha. I know she taught uh, while I was away as well. And I, honestly the last time I was here teaching, it's it's still kind of a blur. I don't really kind of remember, it's almost like I was here, but I was in a daze. I was not, I was, I'm not doing very much better now, (laughs) but I don't have the headache right now, so I'm able to think a little bit more clearly, but I'm just still fighting this staph infection now, and it's just kicking my butt, you guys, so please pray for me, because (sighs) I just, I'm a disaster. (laughs) <laughs> I just want to go to heaven like right now, <laughs> but anyway, here I am. All right, okay, let me, let me start us with a reading. Uh, back to reality, I am, I am where I am. Let's praise God for that, right? I'm thankful for all of you guys to tolerate my, my ins and outs here. Um, I want to talk about dull hearts, because this, it seems to me, like the issue that seems to keep coming up over and over. And and even with the disciples, although they they were having faith, there were things that God was actually withholding from them. He was literally putting a cloak over their mind to conceal some things from him. But there were also other things he's like, like for instance, the question they posed to him about faith, grow our faith for us, Lord, right? And it's like, he's like, you know, it only takes a little faith. And then, well, we'll get into what, what his answer is on that. But um, I still think it's the dullness of hearts and I think even though we can put that all off on people who don't know God and they don't have the Holy Spirit so they don't have that illumination, but I also think that we as children of God sometimes have dull hearts. And so I just would like to read this for you a little bit and kind of set the tone I think for the rest of what we're going to be looking at and then we're going to dive in and going to do a really nice review of context setting to get your brain back to where we're at and then we'll cover, so hopefully get through 17 and 18, if we can do it quickly. Okay, so I'm in Matthew 13, and Jesus is teaching a parable about the sower and the seed, and we looked at this this week, right? So it's kind of fresh in your mind, right? And then he, and he goes on at the end of this, starting in, um, I'm going to start with 12, He says, for whoever has, to him much more will be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So talking about, I mean, this could be resources. It could be the the word of God itself, how much word is given to them, and uh, more will be given to them. And as a Christian, that's how I'm looking at this. I'm like, if I'm faithful with what God gives to me and reveals to me, if I live it out, if I put it into practice, if I, if I exercise it, then God will give it me even much more. What an encouragement that is. In a way, it kind of sounds negative when you read it in the full context of this because it sounds like he's just talking to the unbeliever, but I'm turning it a little bit, and I'm saying, in my life, I'm looking at this and saying, you know, am I one who, as his child, um, kind of stops up my ears on certain subjects or on certain uh, applications. I don't want to put into applications sometimes the things that God shows to me or reveals to me. Um, And he says, he goes on to say in 1313, therefore I speak to them in parables because While seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears have scarcely uh, hear, and they have closed their eyes, and they should see with their eyes, and they should hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return." and I should heal them. In other words, it's possible. Remember where it says it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God, right? So this is kind of where my mind went with some of this for personal application, because I'm taking something where he's actually addressing unbelievers and their rejection, and I'm saying, how might some of this also apply in my personal life? He says, but because... um, but blessed are your your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. And he goes on with the parable of the sower. So, I, you know, as we are studying these things about Jesus, and although we're being rather um, uh what is we're compartmentalizing sort of, and we're we 're regimenting it out so we can see how it lays out and to see the flow of thought and sometimes it kind of makes us feel a little bit detached but i also I would like to just say, I have personally felt that this study has had more um practical application over and over and over in my life and every time something happens I have a conversation with a friend on a phone I talk to my daughter about something I talk to my husband and it just keeps coming up and um and I think that that if you and I can grab hold of the real meat the real truths that are being shown to us in this and not just kind of say that's uh, a biography about a life of a, of Jesus, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. Just kind of make it um, uh, detached. But if we can take it and really grab hold of it, and say, how how do we see this actually living out still in my own life today? How is it working in our world today? It, are these problems that we're seeing that Jesus was facing the same problems that we're facing even yet today in the world? When it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to trying to draw people to faith, they're They have the ears. You can tell them over and over. There are some people in your life that you will tell or share the gospel with over and over and over, and no matter how clearly you explain it, they still won't accept. And all you do is you stand there and shake your head. You know, there's a passage that says, what should you do? What should you do? What do you need to be willing to do? You need to be willing to understand that you're not in charge of their heart. And you need to let go of of the result of the message that you give. You need to give the message but then allow God to be the one that works in their heart. If they do not bow their knee, let me me tell you one more personal story. My son is kind of always on this that he has been for a couple of years now, back and forth on God or not God, right? He's he is at a place where he's not um, rejecting of God. He believes there's a God. He just doesn't want to bow his knee. So this past week, I've been saying you should, you need to get to church. You need to get involved in the church. It'll help you, even if you don't believe yet. Going and being there and listening and hearing the word and building relationship with people who do love the Lord. This will be. This will. This is a journey for you, Eric. Just get on the path and test the Lord and see that He is good. That's what He says. And um, so, my daughter and I had s- several couple of months ago given him all kinds of websites for places he could go in San Antonio to church that were close to where he lived and that he could find. Well, he, he lost his phone, he has all kinds of excuses. And um, so, then this weekend, I said, Well, you need to go to church. She said, Well, can you send me those links again? And I said, No. If you want to find a church, you need to Google, you need to find it, you need to be the one that's proactive in this because if you don't take it and if you don't pursue it, What's the point for me to keep doing this for you? You have to be the one that hungers for God and wants to find him. Yeah. Okay. That was my life story. All right. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to some... Now let's go back into what we've we've been looking at here. Let's do a, a quick review. I forgot to do the chart up here. I'm sorry. I should have been on the ball. I want to look at the review on, on context because I do think that that helps us, although there is no one in here that's new to this, right? We were, All of us were here in part one, so we can probably skip a lot of this, but let's just, let's just get the basics here, okay, uh, on the context, and I won't go into as much detail since we don't have new ones. Okay, who is our author? Okay, Luke. Now, how do we know that it's Luke? And, and do you remember kind of ba- the background to that part of it? Does the book of Luke tell us anywhere that Luke wrote? Come on. No, thank you, Brenda. Good answer. The answer is no. Oh shoot. (laughs) For those of you who said yes, no. (laughs) Okay. However, we do have another book, Acts, right, that helps us a little bit in that it gives us additional clues, right? In Acts, when you open up Acts uh, chapter one at the very beginning, it tells you right off the bat there's a connection between Luke and Acts. Does anybody remember what that is? Oh good. Read that one for us, Martha. Okay, so he's letting you know in Acts chapter 1 right off the bat that this is a a follow-on to what he wrote in Luke. So whoever the author is, he authored both Luke and the book of Acts. That's important for you to know. It's a great connection. And quite honestly, those two books should be almost one They did divide them because they have two purposes, two different design purposes, but they are the same author, and it's a continuation, right? Now, tell me what you remember about the author's purpose in in here. We we do know, uh, let me finish the thought about Luke. Why do we know it's Luke? Well, only by tradition. That's all we know it is been, it's well established. here let me just read what my commentary said from the second half of the second century ad onwards there is a clear and consistent belief that the writer of this gospel and also acts was luke the doctor and companion of paul and it gives us scripture verse in uh, colossians 4:14 And then it says, and there is not the faintest hint of any alternative view in the early church. So that's really what we're relying heavily on. The other thing that we rely heavily on to come to the conclusion that it's Luke is the relationship between Luke and Paul and all those whom he would have interviewed, which we're going to talk about here in the the purpose of the book here in Luke uh, chapter 1, how it gives us that purpose statement. He could have only attained um, the accumulative information that he had if he had this personal contact with these close-up and personal eyewitnesses to Jesus. So we know that he lived during the time of Jesus. We know that he had personal contact with all those who had very close relationship with him. And then through a lot of the other little clues, people who are m- smarter and, and more, you know, minute in their in their study habits, um, they have connected enough dots that they say, see, Luke is with him here, and he's with him here, and he's with him here, and that, that's how they have validated the tradition, so to speak. So that they, they have the tradition, which is longstanding and never contradicted, which I think is pretty big, because if it, if it hadn't been, it seems like that early church would have been the ones to really contradict it, but there are no contradictions. So that's what gives us the confidence to say this is Luke, okay? So... By tradition, it's Luke, purpose, talk about the purpose of it. What do we see on the purpose part? Okay, so that you may know the exact truth. And it's about the things you have been taught. And what things have they been taught? Okay that yes they have been taught what they have been taught they have been taught the gospel and who's the major subject of the book of Luke Jesus and in what capacity or what title is his major emphasis on in this book he is the Son of Man. That's exactly right. So Son of Man. Now, we looked one more time again at the idea of the about the coming kingdom, which kind of links back to the Son of Man. We looked at that this week, and we did it by looking in the book of Daniel. But when you and I looked at it before, we went back, we looked at the Son of Man to try to cl- clear give a clearer definition of who that was. What did we link it back to, and where do we see the beginnings of our understanding about who the Son of Man is, what that title means? Back to Genesis. Good, good, Genesis. And where in Genesis does all this Son of Man start? Yes, Genesis 3. In what situation what has happened in genesis 3 that a son of man is being promised to come the sin of adam and eve so it starts in the garden of eden it starts with adam and eve it starts with the the breach of uh um the, the of obedience against god right they they um, they sinned against god and therefore there were consequences now tell me kind of in your remembrance what are the consequences? what's the consequence of their uh, sin. What happened in the world and in the system that God has set up because of sin? One of them is physical death, okay? What else? Separation, Separation from God. In other words, because th- the establishment that God had from the beginning in the garden was that God was to be our king, right? He was to be our, uh, our God, and he walked with them in the garden. Well, that ceased to happen after the time of sin. So we have death came in, and now we have a separation between God and man, and God no longer fellowships in that same capacity, right? He has it totally abandoned, but he has separated himself because of sin. What else? What was the issue with Satan that was going on there? So there was spiritual warfare that began in that garden, and we fell for the temptation of it. We subdued to it. We followed um, after what Satan tempted her with by saying, oh yeah, did God really say, right? Doubting if God's truth was really true. So there's this spiritual warfare that entered in. And from that point forward, we we as a human race have had issues with the demonic forces of darkness, right? Um, So we have We have death. We have separation from God. We've got spiritual warfare. There's a couple of other things. What else have we got issues going on? What is Jesus doing over and over in the book of Luke? What is he doing when he encounters people who are sick? He heals heals them. So we have physical sickness, right? So there's sickness and death. Death came in, but also sickness came in. And demon possession, that's why I was saying spiritual warfare and the, for the demon possession. So you have these four, or you might even break it down into five if you want to kind of separate or split some hairs on things. But these are the consequences for what occurred in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, right? And now what we see is Jesus in the pages of Luke coming to undo that. Now, where is it in Luke or in Genesis 3 that Jesus speaks on this? Well, how does he say it to the woman? What is the promise to her about a seed? Someone look up Genesis 3.15 and just read that real quickly to remind you. You got that, Martha? Thank you. Okay, so in that little statement there that he will bruise you on the heel and he will bruise him on the head, meaning basically it's speaking of the coming crucifixion of Christ. That's the first uh, mention of the gospel of God sending a seed. Now how does the seed come to us in what form? A human being um, a man, right? And so that's the beginning of the story that a man will be born. God will come in flesh, Emmanuel, and he will come to basically crush the head of Satan and to repair, restore, um, uh, uh, what is another way of saying To to reconcile us back. That's a good one, good word. To reconcile us back, right? That's good. Yeah, she's... (laughs) I like having people in the front row. They can just, you know, (laughs) help me. (laughs) Yeah, that's a <laughs> she's reading my mind. <laughs> exactly. So the, this reconciliation is what it, it's all about. So Luke is actually, this is what Luke's all about. Luke is showing us what was promised in Genesis 3, what later is promised to Abraham, a seed, a son who would come. And later after that comes Daniel. And he, and it's the Son of Man who will come, and in that particular time, we see he's going to come to rule and reign, and it's showing that there are two qualities to the coming. And so this is what we're looking at. Isn't this amazing? How we're, how much broader now you kind of have of your understanding of this whole picture in Scripture, and how, the, how they, they act, the dots connect how the story starts, but it's an ongoing flow, and it's a continuation, and the promises made are promises kept. I love this. I love this. Okay, so it is the exact truth, in about the things that they have been taught. Been taught about who? About the Son of Man. And in this book, he says, um, how did he go about doing this? In, his, in this author's work to bring this to us, what did he do? He investigated. Okay, he investigated, he had eyewitnesses, and then when, and in consecutive order, that's right, so, and it was written, now what does that part mean, written in consecutive order? That's right, consecutive order, it's talking about logical order, Uh, something which builds a storyline, and he places things, uh, in other words, not specifically chronological, right, because we do know there's a few things that are slightly out of place, and we won't go into all that, but what he does do is he groups uh, storylines, themes of messages in sort of groupings. He says, let me cover this section about what I want you to see about the Son of Man. And he gives you a little picture. So we started all the way back at the beginning. Let's, let's do a quick review of what we've seen about Jesus so far and about the message of who the Son of Man is. Go back to your at-a-glance chart. Do you have your at-a-glance charts handy? And the first three chapters, on the whole, what does it show us about the Son of Man? It's it's really a large part of His life, kind of consolidated into just three chapters, right? It shows us, though, there's another uh, uh, important character that's uh, presented to us in those first three chapters, and who who is he? Why is he important? He's the forerunner. Now, why is it important that he is recorded in this record about the coming of the Son of Man? Because of prophecy. Because of the r- So we got some key words that are starting to pop up in our heads, I hope, that within the writing of Luke, we have major subjects like prophecy and the written word of God that are essential for us to pay attention to, because these are things that are being fulfilled, and there are things that were prophesied before, and so therefore, when they are fulfilled, they are the obvious clue that this is God doing it, right? And this should have been the clue to these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these lawyers that we keep seeing who are kind of pushing against, kind (laughs) of, that's an understatement, right, that are pushing back on the message. They, of all people, why they, of all people, should they have known? Because they're the ones with the knowledge about these prophecies. They're the, one, they're the ones who are teach are supposed to be teachers of these factual truths that there's a seed that's been promised from the Garden of Eden, that, that to Abraham a son was promised who would come and he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world, right? And uh, t- when you think about others like Ezekiel, You know, in that day, I'll make a new covenant with Israel. Not like the old one, right? I will remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within them. So, I mean, these are all written prophetically and fulfilled in the days of Jesus that we're seeing right here. They're all in the process of being fulfilled. And yes, it, it, it could have been difficult for them on one level because... Sometimes it's kind of like what we're experiencing right now is we're seeing the coming of the end of the age. We're looking for that day of revelation to unfold before us when the second coming of Christ appears before us, but we're looking for the signs. But rather than rejecting every point, we're looking at it intently and dissecting kind of the pieces of it to say, does this fit with what Scripture says? Is that not what they should have been doing? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes? The, the leaders of Israel, those who knew the most about who God was and what he had promised them, and right? And so they are the ones that should have been looking for this. So those first three chapters lay this foundation down. There was a forerunner who was prophesied, and then it all happened exactly as said, right? Okay, then we see in chapter 4 what happened. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Now, isn't it interesting that we start the beginning or, or just prior to the beginning of his public ministry, he, like Adam and Eve, in the garden, Jesus in the wilderness has encounter with Satan, who does what to him? Tempts him to not believe God. Is it written? Does it say? Is, is that what God actually meant? Right? And if you'll do if you'll just bow down to me and worship me, I'll give you all this. And I just think to myself, what a joke. You're going to give him what he already owns. <laughs> right? I mean, right? And yet here we are, but his this temptation in the garden is very strategic. Have you are you seeing the consecutive logical order? at this point. So he lays that temptation down in that chronological way so that you understand that this is the seed who has come to undo what man did in the Garden of Eden. And he he begins his ministry by facing head to head Satan himself and defeating, being victorious in it, right? Then he enters into his public ministry. And then what does he do in five and six... He begins to call his apostles, and he begins to preach the gospel message, right? And he's and so he's proclaiming what about himself? What does Jesus begin right away proclaiming? Yes. And do you remember in 7, I don't know if you, I don't know how you titled chapter 7, but specifically John now is in prison, and he sends word back to Jesus and says about him what? What's the question? Are you the expected one? Are Is that you? Am, how, how do I know for sure? Are you the expected one? And what was Jesus's response? It's, it's stellar. It's, look, what do you see? What do you hear? And, and consequently what he's saying is, without saying it, what do you know the prophecies have said about the one of the Son of Man who would come? When Jesus came into his public ministry uh, in chapter four, he went to the temple, right? And what was, what was that he read out of Isaiah to the people? Today in your hearing, this is fulfilled, right? And he, and he read up to the point of the first coming, the work of the first coming. And what was the work going to be? That he was going to do what in his ministry? As evidence that he is the Son of Man. That he would He would set He would set free the captives. He would heal. Right? Can someone find that real quick? Chapter four. Go into chapter four and let's read it together real quick.
1: those who are oppressed to
0: proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Wow. And then what happens uh, sequentially in the layout of how this author lays lays the rest of the things from chapter uh, five all the way down really to where we are right now is what? He's doing exactly what he said in that passage in, in Isaiah. He says, I am here and this is being fulfilled in your hearing and in your sight. And so when John asks the question, are you the expected one? He says, well, what do you see and hear? So my question to you and I today is, as we are waiting for the coming, the second coming of Christ, what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Is it exciting or what? I mean, do you not look around you? And on the one hand, you kind of have dread for those who don't know the Lord, and you know he's coming quickly, and quite honestly, we know, boom, in an instant, we could be gone, and they will be left with the mess that they have to deal with, right? Uh, that's my, my eschatology. We're out of here. <laughs> Yours may not be, but I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm rapturing out of here before the big turmoil occurs if I have my druthers. Uh, but if not, I will endure. Yes? Will you? even if God doesn't do what we expect, what we we hope, which is that we get to go, if we are asked to endure maybe the first three and a half years in particular, and that's a possibility also In, in as far as looking at the, the way it's laid out, the wrath of God is not poured out until the last three and a half years. So those first three and a half years we could possibly have to be expected to go through. It's a possibility. And so I'm not saying none. However, I personally think we're out before, but if we are, will you endure? Will you look around, you see the works of God, see the evidences of what's happening, and do as what Jesus replied to him, what do you see and what do you hear? Yes. All right. So that's kind of a good review. I think it's not Totally thorough. I mean, I I have tons more, but I'd rather go on and spend our time on some of these other things. Um, I'm going to just list for you off the top of my head some things that I want you to be aware of. Key words for us thus far: Jesus being the Son of Man, the Kingdom of God, the word faith, gospel, good news. Right over and over and over, salvation, sin, the word of God and prophecy, as we just discussed, Uh, but also the word repentance and the word woe. Now, why the word woe? What part of this message that Jesus brings, besides the good news, what is the woe about? Yeah, I'm warning you, if you don't believe, if you reject, if you stop up your ears, if you close your eyes to this, there is a consequence of of separation that's an eternal consequence. And so we looked at um, Luke 16. Do you remember what was in Luke 16? I love that passage. Yes, Lazarus and and the... um, the rich man, right, and we got to see the picture, and we did not get to do it, and I was feeling really punky at that point, and so I kind of sl- sloughed off a little bit. I'm so sorry, but that particular teaching, for those of you who've been with me long enough, we did a beautiful drawing. We physically drew it out, and if you have not done so, I highly recommend you take the time to sit down and go through Luke 16, that whole picture of uh um. The, the what is it, what do they call it? they call it sheol or Hades right and she and the description is given to you of the two compartments basically and the great chasm that's in between and the conversation that goes on that gives you boundaries to the the physical reality of what happens to a person after death and keep in mind this is before the cross, so this is before Jesus sets a, a host of captives free and takes them into heaven, so this is where the, the dead went prior to the cross, right? So keep that in mind, that is still Old Testament uh, in its t- on the timeline. So this gives you a reality check about the woes. The woe, what is the woe about? Because the reality is what he explained to us in chapter 16. What is going to happen? There is going to be separation between you and anything that's good and holy and clean. The light of God, the love of God, you are going to be separated from that. You reject it in this life, you will live it in eternity. And that's the woe, that's the warning that's given to us in this book. So that's another key word, and we see this repeatedly. Jesus keeps bringing it up over and over. When he gives the gospel, he gives the whole gospel. He balances the message with this is what God will do for you and in your life. And not only that, but but it's not just what God's going to give to you that should draw you in. It's the fact that God is. He is who he says he is. He is the God of this universe. He is the creator of your, your very flesh. He knits you together in your mother's womb. And by that very virtue of him being the creator, we owe him worship. And he's a good God. He's a loving God. He is a God full of light. But he's a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And he, and he has rules. And there's boundaries given to us. And boy, are they not lovely. Because living in the boundaries of that, is, if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's a rule that fits one, one size fits all, everyone has to obey, everyone has to fall in that line, then living in that kind of a society, think of that. That's what we're hoping for. We keep trying to impl- implement that in our worlds around us, that everybody should have equal justice under the law. Everyone should obey the rules. Everyone should do what's right. But the problem is there's that passage in the Old Testament that says, yeah, they do right, but they do right in their own eyes. And, you know, in a, and a man's heart is wicked. It's deeply wicked. And so often their right is you and I is wrong. Who, who gives what's right? God, Jesus, the word of God. That's where truth is given to us that tells us what is right and what is wrong. And The world does not accept that. They reject it. And That's what we're seeing in the book of Luke the rejection of God's word, the rejection of truth, the rejection of boundaries that God has set in, in his law for how to approach God and how to have relationship with him, right? How to come into that fellowship. But he is a good God. Okay, major people in this are Jesus. We did speak of John the Baptist. But we also have the apostles and other disciples. And they are kind of two groups, but sometimes they overlap, right? The disciples and the twelve. Then there's Pharisees and the lawyers and all the, that group. And then there's Satan and demons. But there's also angels. So we got a little bit of everything going on in here, right, for the people. Uh, major events. You tell me, major events that we've seen so far. Birth. His birth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, going to the temple, presenting him. Baptism, public ministry, right, um, and then what are the things that Jesus does? Kind of just big picture. Healings, casting out demons. So these are all the major events that you're seeing going on in this book, um, and also Jesus's teachings. And one of his major way of teaching that he really loves to do is through what? Parables. Love that. How do you handle parables when you're interpreting parables? How is that different from looking at just the rest of the of the historical record that's given in Luke. Well, no, it's fiction, but it's the story he's trying, to,
1: he's trying to teach a lesson
0: through a story. Yes, there that you go. The truth. Right. That it's a story to, to that teaches oh. the truth. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So it's a it's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning, mm-hmm. right? And that. there you go. There you go. Consolidate. <laughs> heavenly story, earthly meaning. Um, or yeah, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I had it backwards. Earthly story, heavenly meaning. <laughs> I'm I'm okay. And but but in it is a moral truth or a principle or a doctrine that he's trying to convey. But you cannot build doctrines off of parables. Just know that you can pull a doctrinal truth out of it and say, oh, this is a principle that's true, and then go study how that doctrine is actually taught in the, in the doctrinal teaching areas in the Word of God. But you're, gonna, you're looking for one primary truth when you look at parables. Parables generally only have one. Sometimes they have two, but usually it's just one major point that they are trying to make, and that's what you're looking for when you look at parables. Mm-hmm. There you go. So, what does that tell you then about uh, Luke 16 and Lazarus and the rich man? It's actually a true story, not a parable. Although some commentaries will say it's a parable, and it is not a parable, because why? He speaks of also in that parable not only Lazarus's name, but who else is named in there? Abraham. He's a historical figure we all know, right? So it's literal truths that are within it. Then you know it's a truth statement. It's a it's a literal account. It's history. It's something that occurred and it's being conveyed to you. But when it's a parable, usually it's a, a man and he had a son, or it's a farmer, or it's a shepherd, or it's it's a generality that is given to you about them. It's not, There's no real specific names. Okay, so that's a good thing to have learned in the Uh, the working through of the book of Luke. It's a principle you can use in all the Gospels anytime you come across the parables. They are handled differently than factual historical record. It's It's a different literary form, and so therefore from it you understand it's fictional, but it has a truth message in it that is truth. Okay? All right, now, major subjects. Second coming of the Son of Man, also the coming of the kingdom of God, Um, And you can almost put those two together because they kind of overlap. Um, The gospel of salvation, spiritual warfare, and also warnings for unbelief. So that kind of gives us our review. And now let's move on. Let's get into what we looked at this week in Luke 17. Now what I want to do this time is just go through each, each uh, piece of the storyline in Luke 17, and then once we kind of get it all up on the board, then we'll try to tie it together and see what the flow of thought is or what the connecting parts are. So in Luke 17, you start out in verses 1 and 2 as a paragraph, correct? Did everybody kind of do it that way? Luke 17. Now, it could be broken down, just so you know, 1 through 10 it could all be 1, consolidated area, and you could give it one title, and we'll do that together after we break it down first. Let's first, though, look at the messages that are given. What do we see in one in verses 1 and 2? What does he... Right. So there's kind of um, an, a warning that's given here. Would you call it a warning? I'm going to write that down, that what we're seeing here is Jesus is giving a warning A warning statement or truth and he's saying, basically to them, therefore, woe to him who does what? Yeah, word to him uh, who causes stumbling. Now, so if you're not to be a stumbling bl- block to these little ones, what, what, it, what rather should you be doing? And we did not really go into this in the homework, but as, as students of the Word of God, there have been so many times we've looked at these things, like in Philippians 2.4 and 1 Corinthians 10. Um, what is it that we should be doing for our brothers and sisters and for humanity around us? Rather than being a stumbling block... Right. Do you remember somewhere in Luke so far where we see that he says to the group that you are hindering others? Not only are you yourself not entering, but you're doing what? You're keeping others from entering in, right? Do you remember that? But you don't have to look it up. Just, it's just in the back of my head. I've, it just kind of popped in for a second. Now it's gone. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> okay, let's look at Philippians 2.4. Somebody look that one up, and then 1 Corinthians 10.24, because it's two verses, I think, that, are, that actually kind of press in a little bit better, showing the contrast to you're not to be a stumbling block, but what rather should you be doing? Um, who wants to do Philippians 2.4? Okay, Celeste. Okay, that's pretty cut and dry, right? Don't just be looking up for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That means you have to put others' needs, uh, you know, at a higher level and, and even above your own in order to make sure that what, what they are getting will actually be something that will lead them into a relationship with God, not be a stumbling block to their relationship with God, right? So for us, sometimes, how do you see that in practicality? What might that mean in your life as far as how you're leading or um, influencing others? Be a good example in everything you do. Yes. Oops. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So that's a tough one, huh? Being, being a good example. What else? It is a duty. Yeah, you're just you're only doing your duty if you fulfill it. Even. Mhm. Okay. Okay. So if you're gonna look out for the best interests of others. It, you have to view it as your duty. You have to feel, feel that it really is your responsibility. This always takes me back to covenant because in covenant we have a relationship with one another and with God, and in that we have covenant duties that come with it. In covenant, salvation is by grace, but once in covenant you also have duties, and that's where you see sanctification worked out in our lives on, our, on, on that daily basis. First Corinthians 10, who has that one? Uh, Janice, thank you. Ten twenty-four. Nobody seek own good but the good of others. Okay, simple, plain and simple. Shouldn't just seek your own good but also the but for the good of others. So w- you the real contrast, you should not cause stumbling. You should should seek for good of others. That one it makes me even think of first John where it says, if you don't love your brother, then you really don't love God either, because God is love, and God says that you're to love your, your brother, and you're to uh, exhibit acts of love, right? All right, now let's go to the, uh, to the well, what, let's cover the word woe, because we've talked about it a couple of times already, but I actually did a word study on it one more time. How many times have I done word studies on that? But I just want to throw it out there, because this is a strong warning he's giving, woe to him who causes stumbling. Now, think of from whose lips this word just came from. Who says this? Jesus, do you believe him? And he's saying, whoa. I mean, I, you know, I kind of think of childhood when my my mom would say, you know, if you do that, you're going to be sorry kind of a thing. You know, you you kind of, your ears perk up and you're and you kind of sit up a little straighter and you realize, You're walking on thin ice in this if you aren't careful, right? And so here he says, whoa, and this is the definition. It means horror, dread or dreadful, disastrous, (laughs) and it is an exclamation of grief as well. This is a warning that says you have no idea how much God hates people the acts, not people themselves, but the actions of people who do this kind of thing, who are a stumbling block to others. And you have to understand that when he says, whoa, he means watch out, right? Whoa. All right, now, three and four. Let's go to the next section, three to four. What's, what does he give us there? Another word. It's almost like he's jumping from subject to subject to subject here, right? What does he see in three and Four. What's the major subject there? Okay, forgiving. Also, repentance. And another key word? Rebuke. Interesting. Those kind of are all brought together. So in there, he's saying about about the subject of sin, what are you supposed to do? Rebuke sin and forgive sin. So basically, those are the the two messages, and he kind of clumps them together. So he gives you both spectrums, right? He says, on the one hand, don't tolerate it. That makes me think of Revelation and the letters to the churches. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, right? And he says, woe to you. I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. I mean, he really lets them know she has not repented. I am going to judge her. And I'm telling you, when I do this before your very eyes, I want you to understand woe to you too, right? You need to rebuke sin when you see sin. But on the other hand, concerning sin, what's the other far side of it? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, If what? If they repent, right? So those who repent, you are to forgive. Now, that's not the full subject of forgiveness. It's a snippet. But what he's doing is he's showing the gamut. He's showing you from one side that you're to rebuke it on the, so basically you are to hate sin, but you are to do what for the sinner? Love the sinner. Isn't that cool? You could say hate sin, but love the sinner. You could say that, right? Hate sin. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't see that. Yeah. So, so there is a really good flow going on here, isn't there? The, the idea of not being a stumbling block, which, would, which in itself is a sin on your part, right? <laughs> but rebuke sin and forgive sin. In other words, hate sin, but love the sinner. Yes. Yes. Yeah, good. Very good point. Okay, so now let's go to, so um, this one, I'm just going to tell you, to me this is, this was a warning, but what is this? Or a commandment or an exhortation. Exhortations usually are, are more encouraging. This one is more of You are to do this, right? He's giving them a commandment. You are to rebuke sin, and you are to forgive people who are repentant, right? So it is a commandment. That's not my pen, and it's dead. I'm going to throw it down there for now. Uh, Remind me to pick that up. (laughs) (laughs) I just littered. Okay, so here we have a commandment, and I'm just trying to show you kind of what I see in this flow of thought as well. What he's doing here, is first he's given a warning, now he's given a commandment. Basically, also what I did is I kind of tied it back to Luke 6, even. I went all the way back to Luke 6, 6 where God, showing God as being merciful, right? Um, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Um, And then I contrasted that with what I said about Thyatira, that, you know, uh, you tolerate that sinner who leads others astray, and you're not to tolerate sin, but you're to rebuke it. So it kind of gives you both sides. On the one hand, mercy. On the other hand, um, forgiveness. Okay. Now, we get to 5 all the way through 10 is the next segment. This one was a little trickier. I don't know if you guys had any trouble with it, but he starts out with a statement. What is, the, what is it that the um, disciples ask him to do? Increase our faith. Okay, so if you understand that is what Jesus is answering in the next few verses, you'll be able to tie together what happens in uh, five to 5 and 6 and then what happens following in 7 to 10. Because there's no break between 6 and 7 at first I had them as two different segments because it seemed like it was two different subjects, but then I realized the flow of thought is all one. And so he starts out by making a statement. What does he say about faith? When they say increase our faith, what does he tell them about faith that's true? That's a truth. It's very powerful. So the first thing he says is just a little faith, Is powerful. Okay, so that's his first point. So he ta- he uses the mustard seed again as a as the example of that. He did that also back in Luke thirteen. He used that same mustard seed. We talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom, what it was like. Right, it was like a mustard seed. Starts out little, but it's going to be uh, gargantua. Right. Well, true. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. How are we going to do that? So his thing is, well, increase our faith because if we're going to hate sin but love the sinner, increase our faith. Yeah, that's a good flow of thought. Okay. Then he says, so his first, his first point is a, is a, is kind of a fact statement sort of, right? He gives a fact. Just a little faith is powerful. okay, and um now he's so so then he goes on to do what what does he follow it with starting in seven seven to ten what's going on there okay what is okay, what's the what is the the two what are the two parts to the story who are the two characters of this story there's this the master and the slave. Okay. And concerning the slave, what is the message to the slave? Be obedient, be your God, what? Yeah. Be obedient servants st- as you ought to, right? Now, what does that have to do then with the question about increasing our faith? So what is Jesus saying? Be obedient, be God, obedient, servants, to, right? Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like, almost sounded like he's, he jumped subjects, but the reality is what he's, what he's saying to them is, you want greater faith? Exercise the little bit of faith that you already have. You want it, How do you get bigger muscles? You exercise the little muscle that you do have. It gets bigger as you use it, right? And, by, and P.S., and by the way, whether you have little faith or big faith, It doesn't matter where you're at in your faith walk, whether you're a new believer and you're young in your knowledge and truths and and if you're just getting started out, or whether you're mature and you've been walking a long time. In both cases, what must we continue to do according to this statement? Continue serving God. Continue exercising what faith you do have because that's how faith grows. That's how you will increase your faith. You want to increase your faith? Exercise the faith that you have. I I, love, I k- thought of this this thing came in my head, and I just put it on y- my notes for you guys. But this is, I'm sure they are basically just like you and I today. They were hoping for a pill to pop, right? For instant big faith. I want one of those pill popper, instant big faith. That's what we, everything in our life is about: instantaneous results. But the truth of the matter is, how do you attain to bigger faith, stronger faith? You work it. You exercise it. So just a little faith is powerful. Be obedient servants as you ought to. Okay, so exercise. The faith you have.
1: Right.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not trying to be hard on them, but I am trying to see what the flow of thought here is, is as Jesus is dealing with their unbelief and is dealing with their questions, he is trying to be really pragmatic. And he's saying, well, how do you get from here to there? And so instead of, I had a teacher that was like this. You ask him a question, he would respond with a question. And he always left you hanging. And i really did not like that. But in a way, Jesus does that often. And, and often his responses are done through parables. And I think that, well, you tell me, why do you think he worked it that way? Partly, it's culture. There you go. There you go. He is challenging them to think. He's saying, I'm not going to give you the easy answer. I'm not going to give you the pill to pop. I know how many times. And they've been walking with him how long at this point? Three years? They have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. I know. And they've been exercising miracles. God endowed them with that. And they were sent out. The 12 were sent out. The 70 were sent out. They were performing miracles. They were casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they were coming back and giving report. And then Jesus had to undo some of their thinking on even that when they came back. He was constantly trying to train them up and to grow them in faith and knowledge. On the other hand, sometimes he withheld knowledge. And what's interesting is there's a passage that says that he told them these things now so that later they would bring it to remembrance, and then they would get it. But at the time, he was withholding it so that they would not interfere with the program that God had in in place. I also think, though, that there's a a paradigm shift for all of them, which is God was in a building at this point where people constantly gathered and all that. Or they thought. Yeah. And and right. It's kind of what they, when he keeps saying that the, the kingdom of God is where mm-hmm. in your midst. Not just in a right. yes. Yes. they they're struggling with that because again, it's not a place. Mm-hmm. It's not a place where people go where there's status and all that. Now it's among the people. Now it's a relationship. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nah. Yes, we do. No, no, I understand what you're saying. What is your spiritual gifting? Do you, are you a mercy guy? <laughs> Go sit in the corner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, but it is no. He, I mean, he does have a good point, and I, I, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm not saying not to, but I'm also saying as we are looking at this, um, the pressing of the moment. What was going on with Jesus at this moment? He was, he was literally approaching Jerusalem for his days of crucifixion. He was at the end of his ministry. So at this point, he's not being nice guy anymore. He is saying, look, you have faith. You have little faith, but you have faith. Exercise what you have, right? He's not, it, it's like a parent who tells the kids 17 times, brush your teeth or you're going to have cavities, Right? And, and and he's like, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Did you not hear me? I've said this so many times. So I do think it's like a parenting kind of relationship to, on a certain level. And it is also the pressing of the moment that he is so close to approaching being gone. He is going to die and resurrect, and he needs them to get on it. He was very focused, and so that's why these statements are so direct. So it's not me making them direct. He is, and as a matter of fact, when you go into the, um, into the, Um, commentaries and how the Greek is formulated in this, here we see warning and it's it's a shocking warning. It's a very stern warning. Here we have a commandment. It's a very direct, it's like do this and it's like there's no option for it. Down here though, you're correct. In this one now, we've hit what? An exhortation. So here we see him in exhortation. Yes. And I, uh, like, again
1: thought, well, you know, it goes back to the forgive seven times, you know, right? If it's seven times a day, you know, I mean, humanly, we're like, no, you've done it six times already,
0: you know. Yes. You know, yes. Well, and also just do what you're expecting, what you you know, he was kind of reforming their thinking about, too, serving God and doing things that you ought to do. Remember, it's really only what you ought to do. It's why are you acting like you're doing some big special deal and that you should get a, such a big pat on the back for it? you really, if you are living righteously and morally and upright, if you're obeying the laws of the land, if you are loving your neighbor as yourself and you're putting God first in all things, you're only doing what you ought to. That's it. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, so I'm telling you to do these things, but, but by the way, I'm exhorting you to do those things, but I also want you to know, it's only what you're supposed to be doing and should understand that that's what you should be doing. because after. So he couches it in, in a scenario that they understand, the slave and the master, and he says, does a, does a slave expect that the master wouldn't expect <laughs> that they would serve him, right? And he's saying, no, you need to do what you ought to. And and don't expect that that's supposed to be a phenomenal thing. Just do the right thing. Okay? All right, so that's the first hint. So now, if we want to kind of tie those all together, because then what do we have in, in 11 to 19 is a story about who? 10 lepers. 10 lepers. So now we really are changing gears, right? So in 1 to 10, how would you tie all this together? What is Jesus exhorting? these uh, men to do? To the path. Okay. Of course. Yes. What is he giving them uh, in practicality, basically? Correct. Direction for how to do what? How to stay on the path. How to be his disciples. If you're going to follow, because he has kept saying over and over and over, pick up your cross and follow me, right? Or um, deny yourself and follow me. Or... Um, you know, if you don't give up mother and brother and sister and family and do these, you know, but he says, if you do that, then follow me. So he's wanting them to be his disciples, right? And so in this first part, he's literally laying out some of the, the more uh, basic principles of being a disciple. If you're going to be my disciple, you need to understand that you, that you need to seek for the good of others and not be a stumbling block to others, right? You need to understand that you are to hate sin and love the sinner. And you need to understand that you are just a servant doing what you ought to be doing, if you do what's right. Yeah. So you could say 1 to 10 is uh, uh, expectations of discipleship or... How to be a follower of Christ you could give a title how do you want to say it how would you title this on the t- on the whole directions for your faith walk okay okay like instructions for a faith walk okay or instructions for disciples or or how how to be my disciples. How about that? That's, a, that's... Nope. Right. So in a way, he's actually talking to people who are already in faith then. He's not talking to ones who are seeking God. He's saying in this point, he's speaking to his disciples and he's saying... If you want to be my disciples, this is how my disciples are going to have a faith walk. This is how they're going to live it out. And and so then he gives them a warning, a commandment, and an exhortation. Okay, so that kind of ties the first 10 verses together nicely, doesn't it? Okay, so now he moves on to the next part, which is 11 to 19. And you titled that, there were 10 lepers, right, that were cleansed of their disease, basically, right? But, and only one who gives God, God glory. Only one glorified God. And, he, and that guy was P.S. and by the way, a Samaritan. Now, why is that significant? Well, we looked at that, didn't we? On page six, you did some research on the Samaritans. Now, most of us probably, this is rehashed old information we've known about for a long time, but we looked in 2 Kings. We also looked in John 4. Now, John 4 is real familiar to us. Who is that one about? The woman at the well. Okay, so what did you learn about Samaritans on the whole? They are hated by the Jews. They are despised by the Jews. Why? Yeah. Basically, it has to do with the fact that they were not of the pure bloodline of Israel. These were a result of what? How did they come about being? That's right. They they are part of the the remnant who had been taken captive, some would been brought back, but then who else had been brought back and put within their within their world basically? Other nations. And therefore, consequently, what happened? They did that. Now, think back to Deuteronomy seven. Does anybody remember what Deuteronomy seven is about? Where Jesus where God says to Israel, You're going to go into the land, and when you go into the land, what? do not intermarry, do not let your daughters take their sons for husband, or your sons take the, their uh, daughters for wives, why? That's right, you will, you will follow after their gods, and then you will, you will slip down into sin, you will take your eyes off of God, and then guess what, what am I going to have to do? Remove you off the land, and so there we are, the con- the consequence of exactly what God said, what happened, did happen, and so the result of it was Samaritans. We have an interbreeding, an intermixing. These these other nations that were brought in then began to intermarry with the few that were still left on the land, and we end up with Samaritans. Also, what was the belief system then of the Samaritans? How did they worship? Right. Number one, they violated the first law, which is not in the place which I shall choose. Right. Which God says throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy, you shall worship in the place that I shall choose. That was a key, a key repeated phrase in Deuteronomy. And, he, and instead they built for themselves, we learned in our Kings and Prophets study, yeah, two cities, Bethel and Dan. Right. And they had golden calves. Oh, you're <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Trust me, trust me. <laughs> I hope I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Dan up top and Bethel more on the, bo- closer to the border of, of uh, Judah. And they had golden calves that were set up. They ended up in idol worship and they had their, and so then the, we come to the woman at the well and what's going on there? Where shall we worship? Jews say it should be there. We say it should be here. And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth. You shall worship me in spirit and in truth, or worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay, so the, there's this This is the dilemma, or this is the kind of the background of who these Samaritans are, why they were hated so much. The Jews, therefore, despised them. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't go near them. They also considered them unclean, and rightly so because they had handled dead things, they had come in contact in, in bad ways, and they had never actually purified themselves, they'd never been down to Jerusalem to a- actually uh, participate in atonement and so forth. So for that reason, they were, they were considered inferior outcasts, okay? Um, and they were the least likely, therefore, to have faith, right? But lo and behold, now the implication here is there were ten who were cleansed, one was a Samaritan, so what is the implication about the other nine? They were probably Jews. I mean, it doesn't say that, but the pro- the probability in the contrast here, because he only says, what is it? Because Jesus' response was what? Were there not nine? Were there, oh yeah, were there not ten? Sorry, <laughs> right? Were there not ten? And what does he say? Where are, they, where are these others? And concerning um, his, let's see, where is it? yeah. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So that's interesting. So that tells you the others were not foreigners. Therefore, they were probably Jews. That's how I came to that insight. Okay, so what do we learn then about about, um, Jesus' I guess, response to this. What do we see about the heart of Jesus in this?
1: He loves everyone who seeks him and gives glory to God that he serves, right? Okay. And so I think it's a good story because it also shows that anyone anywhere who's seeking God earnestly, he never turns away. I mean, that glorifies him. And so some people think, oh no, he wouldn't be. Well, the Pharisees thought, oh no, they're not good enough. These people
0: aren't good enough, but he's showing right there, and with the woman at the well and stuff, he, he's he's everyone. Mm-hmm. It kind of it also is a pr- almost a prelude to that Peter story where Peter has the dream and the the sh- the bedsheet that comes down and don't call what's clean unclean. That ki- this kind of is a prelude to that storyline as well. Um, All right, so the emphasis though here is on the thankfulness, correct? And so Kay had us look at a couple of verses, one in James and one in Second Peter. What did you see there? that's on page 6 on your homework if you need to know. Yes. Every good, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. Okay? And then in 2nd Peter, kind of the same thing, what? I love this verse. I remember early in my faith Uh, walk as a young disciple, first being discipled. that this was one of the verses we memorized. His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness uh, through the true knowledge of him, right? So now therefore, if this is true and we're to be thankful then, she didn't take us any further. I'm going to give us two verses. Someone look up Philippians 4.6 and someone else look up Colossians 4.2 because I feel like we almost needed to go on to the therefore part. Okay, since God does this for us, since it's God who gives the good gifts, since in this demonstration that Jesus gave through healing the ten, one came back to give thanks and glory, he emphasizes the importance of thankfulness in this, that there should be a thankful heart when God cleanses you, when God heals you, when God saves you, right? And in thankfulness, then the response should be what? Uh, Philippians four six says what? What is the standard that we should be living?
1: Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by like prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be
0: made known to God. So we are to be thankful, and it's to be a regular habit in our life that when we go to God, that we are to go to God with a thankful heart, right? In um, Colossians four two. yeah mine says keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving and I liked that the idea of, I have a, a a new plaque that I put up it's been about a year ago now but that it, says, it's, it talks about being thankful and being blessed and it just is a constant reminder to me that that you need to have a thankful heart. It's an important quality of our faith walk with him. Now my question to you is um, What's going on here then? We have, this is how you are to be my disciples, and now we have this demonstration of a miracle. What would be the point if if you're thinking from the perspective of this author who's giving us this concise, consecutive account? How does this fit into the picture here then? Every now and then he does that. He'll give you a a series of events that are going on or, or truth points, and then he shows a miracle. So why does he keep dropping these in? I can see you. Oh, very good. So he's tying a thread of the subject of faith up here where he's showing, if you're my disciples and your faith, and he talks about increasing faith, and he's saying anyone who has faith will receive the blessing. Yes. Okay. Good. Good. What else does um, performing a miracle maybe at this point do for the reader as you're looking at a consecutive account? Uh, remember, we didn't talk about it much, but at the, at the beginning we talked about Theophilus being the recipient of this, right? Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. and we talk, um, We've talked many times before about who this was. The title most excellent tells us what about him? somebody who's upstanding, he holds some kind of a position, right? It could be a position of um, le- a legal position, or it could just be a status position, right? And we see him referred to that. Um, he uh, applied, this same title is applied by this same writer twice to Felix. Remember Felix when uh, Paul goes before Felix in the book of Acts? And also once to Festus, who is also another governor. He's a He's a, political ruler, so to speak. So that title could have something to do with a political leadership, or it could just be a legal thing. He says it's likely, therefore, that Theophilus was a chief magistrate of some city in Greece or or even in Asia Minor. But there's also the possibility that he was tied to the legalities that were going on with, with Paul, and maybe the writing then was given as legal transcript for him to use in a court. So if you're looking at this from that perspective, that he's giving him a, a legal document of order and sequential thinking that flows through, he's giving him a statement about, these are my disciples, and who who can be my disciples, right? Anyone who has faith, correct? Um, and also that statement here that that where he says to them you are to serve your master this to me is also a demonstration of a merciful master that the reason you can put your faith and trust how you can you can understand that you it's only your duty to serve this master jesus god right and to understand that this master he demonstrates his his own mercy he didn't only cure the one who had faith, who came back and gave glory. But who else did he cure? The other nine who did not. Yeah. So the blessing there is, it makes me think of in Hebrews where it says, and the rain comes down on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? So, I mean, there's kind of a, a multitude of things that you can see in here of why he might have placed, but it seems to me like on a regular basis, he drops back in an evidence that Jesus is the son. He is the promised seed. And he proves it by his supernatural power, his supernatural works, and he also shows and demonstrates the love and the compassion of God. And he does the love and compassion for all men, Right? Okay, so that's 9 to 11. Then we get to um, 20 to 21. I'll put it over here, Luke 17. There's a principle here. The question is what? When is the kingdom coming, right? Everyone sees that, correct? And Jesus' response is, (laughs) ta-da! I like that. I like that one better than this one. (laughs) It is in your midst. Now, we've talked about this before, the idea of the kingdom of God having more than one quality, correct? What are the two aspects to the idea of the kingdom of God? How can it be in their midst, but yet also be something future? Because one of the things she does is she takes us into Daniel, and we look at Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, when it speaks of that kingdom of God, what is that kingdom of God? And when does it come? It comes at the end. And is it a literal or or a spiritual thing? It's a literal kingdom that Jesus is going to be given the power, and the and the kingdom is going to be um, dominion over the earth is going to be given to him, and he, uh, not only to him, but who else? If if, for those of you who read on in Daniel, us, yes. So we're going to come with him to rule and reign in that time, and it's a literal kingdom. And he's saying about the kingdom to come, there is a literal coming of that kingdom. But also, his first response, though, is something different, right? He says the kingdom is what? It's right here. It's in your midst. This is interesting. So what does he, what does he mean about that? Now, he goes on to um, kind of explain it a little bit. He does say, I think one of the ones that we looked at, I'm not sure, Luke eleven sixteen. 16, we looked at that, right, you guys? Is that correct? I think we did. Luke eleven sixteen, 16, and then verse 29 and 30. I'm really sure Kay gave that to us. What was it that was going on with these people that they were kind of um, asking these questions? But well, when is this kingdom coming? Because after all, what were the Jews waiting for? A king, A king to come and actually literally set up the kingdom for them, right? Restore Israel to their, to their power. Because remember, they lost it. When did they lose the kingdom, the governing of their nation? when did that happen? Babylon. Did they ever get it back? No, not until 1948 when they've reestablished on the land. What we're seeing right now is the reestablishing of the bones, the, the, the flesh being put back on the bones as, a, as the, the prophecy is in Ezekiel, right? Where Ezekiel says, I'm going to put the flesh back on the bones. Little by little, God is putting the people back on the land, and it's, we are working toward that second coming when there will be that literal kingdom. But at the time that this was written, they were a people, and whose rule were they under? Rome, they were not ruling their own land. Yes, they were living there and they were being given some privileges, but they were not ruling themselves. They were under the rule of Rome. And so he says about them, "You are a people, however, what is their stumbling stone?" What does he say in Luke 16 or 11:16 and then 29 and 30? OK, so the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all them, they kept testing Jesus and they were demanding signs. Well, my goodness, excuse me. Have we not just had a sign? When John the Baptist says, "Are you the expected one?" what did he say? look at the signs, look around you, look and see. And John, There's another one in John where, where Jesus says, if you don't believe me, believe, the, believe on the signs which I do. Believe on the miracles which I do. Believe the evidence that I am the one that is supposed to have come. So he has just given them a miracle. Here's, our, here's your sign. And now he, now their question is, well, when are, when are you coming, right? So he says, I want you to understand, you are a people who, who demand signs. Now go on to 29 and 30 and read the rest of that one in Luke 11. Oh, sorry. 29, 30.
1: Okay. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to
0: this generation. Okay, so back in 11, he's already told them there's going to be a sign, and it's the sign of Jonah. So he's already taught this to the masses and probably on more than one occasion. It's recorded in that one record, but don't you know, he probably gave it that message on more occasions than just that. So now he's going to say, now what does Jesus explain to them? This is really interesting. Number one, he says, it's in your midst. Number two, he's, he goes on to explain. So Jesus explains. Okay. And can, it won't come with signs to be as What does he say in 22, though, about who's going to see it? Not you won't. Not I'm, I want you to understand. So when he tells them that are sitting right there in, in his midst, and they're saying, when is the kingdom coming? And he's saying, you won't see it. What does that tell you? It's not, it's not right now. That should have been their conclusion, right? He explained, number one, you won't see it. Yeah, but he's speaking to everyone, yes. Yeah, because whoever is there, they're all listening, okay? The question came from the disciples, but then, from the Pharisee, rather, but now he's explaining. And I really think often when he makes that that deviation to say, I'm really speaking to the disciples, why? Are the Pharisees going to understand it or believe it or accept it? No. So his, his message is really to to his believers. I want you to understand this, because you are the one that really needs your faith to hold fast. I want you to understand, you, you my disciples, today in this moment, you will not see it. Okay? Go ahead. So in verse twenty two it says, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And you will not see it. So they're not talking about him walking among them. Nope. So now he's switched, hasn't he? He's moved. (laughs) Yes. Well, what? So absolutely. Because when he goes on to explain it, he's saying then it's going to be like this. And he gives all these explanations. What is this time frame and this time frame? When is this all occurring? That's the literal coming of him at the end of the age. So he just did a switch. He went from it is in your midst, but it's also not going to be in your midst until another time. So he's, he's actually, what he's doing is he's sh- saying there is a first coming and a second coming. That's really what he's doing. Although he doesn't say it that way, it would sure have be been nicer if he had. It would be a little bit clearer. But he's literally saying to his, my disciples, I want you to understand you are going to long to see that day, but you're not going to see it. And then he goes on, he says, in that day, when it does happen, this is what it's going to be like. So, you will not see it, number one, and, but then he says, it will come unexpectedly, it will come unexpectedly, and I had to add this part to them, because it's, it's not stated in that way, but to those who do see it, it's going to come to them unexpectedly, because he's done a switcheroo from where he is right now, it's in your midst, here I am, first coming, but he says, the, when I come for the kingdom part, the literal kingdom part, he said, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be unexpected, and it, it will come to them basically while they're living life uh, without really understanding or knowing what's go- even going on all around them. Now, the, the cool thing about this to me is, do you, are you and I aware of what's going on? Are we paying attention to the signs of the end of the age? So he really is speaking to the ones who don't, are not yet believing because for them it's going to be unexpected. If it starts to happen, are you and I going to be aware? Are we going to be expecting? Are we going to be looking up? When we see a coalition of 10 kings and a, and a covenant for seven years made with Israel, are, would we be going, ha ha, ding, 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 yeah. Which is part of yeah, which is part of, which is part of the reason why I think we're gone. Because I think that if, if we see those things literally occur with our own ears and our own eyes, we are gonna know this is it, right? But he's saying about in that day when it happens, it's gonna be unexpected to them. They're gonna be like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Lot, right? It's gonna come unexpectedly in that way. Now, yes. J.D. Farag, F.A.R.A.G. Farag. You can find him on YouTube. Yeah, go to YouTube and just type in J.D. Farag, and he'll pop up. He teaches Bible lessons, like he's a pastor of a church in um, in Hawaii. But he also has a prophecy update once a week. F.R. Yeah, thank you. F.A.R.A.G. No problem. Important stuff. Okay, so twenty twenty. So now let's go to twenty two to twenty five. So he's separating. You will not see it. It's in your midst. So first coming, second coming. Okay, you see that? All right. So he 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 splits the hairs on it. Now in twenty two to twenty five, then he goes back to his first coming. right and he says about himself what about the son of man he must do what in verse 20 of 5 probably the son of man must first suffer okay that's in 25 so before this can happen. It's in your midst, and then he goes back to the first coming, and now he's talking again about what must happen before this will happen, right? You're not going to see it. They will see it. They're going to be taken by surprise. Then he says the Son of Man must first, first suffer, and he must, so number one, he must first suffer, and he must be what? Must be rejected, so he's telling them he's going to be rejected. So don't be surprised when it happens, and then go, well, if everybody's rejecting him, then maybe he's not really, and we should just follow everyone else, because everyone else is saying he's not. And, and after all, he died, so he didn't come and set up his kingdom, and that's what he came to do. So oh, is that what he was trying to do? Do you Are you starting to kind of go ding-ding a little bit in your mind? Why was he telling his disciples, and why did he turn to his disciples and say to his disciples, I want you to understand, you're not going to see this day. What did that just do for his disciples? When he goes to the cross and dies, now what are they going to do? I'm so, okay, say it again, Rebecca. Yeah, he's making sure they understand that when he dies, that doesn't mean his that he didn't come and set up his kingdom, and so it wasn't him. What he's showing them is there's going to be two qualities to his coming. The first one is for salvation. The second one will be for the kingdom. But he's literally telling them. The kingdom is here. It's in your midst. I'm establishing the kingdom. I'm establishing the kingdom on the spiritual realm, although he doesn't go into that. He's done that many times already, though, before. We've talked about this. Um, but he's saying, those, though, though, he says, you are not going to see it. So don't be surprised when I die and go away. When I am resurrected, don't. So he's really equipping them to handle the fact that there's going to be a time period in between. When he came for the first to establish that covenant Ezekiel talks about, the shedding of blood for a new covenant, right, where he's going to give his spirit, and the spirit's going to be on, and it's going to be a different kind of covenant than he ever had before, not like the old, a better covenant, and so he's giving them a better covenant. It's kind of like the wineskins he talked about, remember? And they didn't want to accept what, the, the new thing that was coming. But he gave that message already way back earlier in the book of Luke. And he's saying the, the Pharisees and the scribes were rejecting that new thing. There's a new way to me. You can't use the old wineskins. They'll burst. They won't hold it. And he, so he already gave that establishment in, about that fact. And now he's saying, so what I want you to know is, it's in your midst, but before this is going to happen, first I must suffer and I must be rejected. So he's really setting them up to handle what's about to happen. And then he says, and then, after that, then, then what? In 26 to 37, Then he says, and then the Son of Man shall be revealed. So he's, a, he's affirming, yes, there's going to be a kingdom established. Yes, your king is coming. Yes, Daniel 7 will be fulfilled, right? When the Son of Man is given dominion and power and authority, and all men of the nations will uh, fall down and worship me. And like the statue dream earlier in Daniel and 2, all these other kingdoms are going to be crushed. And then the stone that does the crushing will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. Remember that part of Daniel chapter 2? So in 26 and, uh, to 37, he says the days of the Son of Man will be revealed. That? Okay, hold on. The Son of Man will be, hold on, I got this on, will be revealed. I got to have to write. I need a... And so Daniel, and that's where we looked at Daniel 7. So I'm just going to put that up there. Uh, and we don't really need to necessarily go to that. But he gives them a warning about the days when the Son of Man comes to be revealed. It's going to be very different than when he's coming his first time. Because then he warns them in verse 31 to do what? Two things he says don't do. Do not go back. And uh, uh do not take out goods. Don't go back to take out goods, right? I mean, I do know about the second coming, I do know about the
1: when the Jews are supposed to run that. This to me sounds
0: more like the Jews. Don't look back, rhyme, you know, go hi. So what is that what is thirty one meaning? What time is it? Okay, you tell me. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm talking, to the, I'm talking to the whole group. I know you want me to tell you, Celeste. I'm trying to be a teacher and not a teller. You know what I mean? Okay, so it's, he says in 30, 30, is the preface to it. 30 says it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so if you do a timeline, where, where are we in the timeline? Oh, I don't have a place for a timeline. Okay, right here. We've got the cross. This is, where we are right, this is where we are right now, right? And what is he saying about when the Son of Man comes and when the Son of Man is revealed? What, where are we on the timeline for that? We have the church era, right? The cross. We're talking about right down here where we've got that seven years, right? And he's going to come again, correct? And he says, when the Son of Man... Son of Man revealed. When the Son of Man is revealed, it's going to be when? When he comes again, correct? To s- establish his kingdom. As it says in Daniel 7, Daniel 7 is speaking of this time right here, right? He's going to be presented before, um, uh, how is God uh, portrayed in that one? The... Mm, the Ancient of Days, thank you. There you go, Brenda, you good girl. Well, think about it, though. <laughs> well, okay, okay, yes, 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 you're right. I put the arrow in the wrong spot, didn't I? You're right, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, you're right. It's at the end of the seven years, because it's at the end of the, se- of the, tri- so sorry. My, pro- my mistake. Okay, so we're at the end of the seven years of the, the time we refer to as tribulation right? Daniel's 70th week. This is why she took us to Daniel, because Daniel tells us that Jesus is presented before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days gives him dominion and power to rule over the earth, right? And although she doesn't give us any more, I wish she had, but what we also know from other studies is that that Jesus will come back according to revelation, and when he comes back, what is it going to be like? What's going to have been happening on the earth those seven y- during those seven years? Right. So does that fit with what he's saying right there? What does he say in 31? On that day, the one who's on the housetop and whose goods are in the home house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. I think the word that is messing you up is on that day. On that day can can often mean not just a specific day but what mm-hmm. a time frame and so he's making a reference to on that day it, is, is that the when is it true day the june about like the during the yep there you, there you go there you go. go but it didn't make sense to me
1: because then he starts talking about leaving one and taking another
0: and all that right like, is this all pointing to the same timeline or is it just like piecemeal? no no, and he's saying on that day. So first of all, he's speaking about the time frame of the seven years, and all the way up to the very day when Jesus literally does come. And what he says it, that follows it that helps you kind of lock it down is talking about those seven years. He's talking about the vultures that are going to gather, right? And who's going to get? Who are they going to gather to devour? The, unbel- the dead bodies, the people who are killed during that time, which would be the unbelievers, that Jesus comes back. Remember, he's coming to tread the wine press, right? And, he will, and there will be a killing of all the people of unbelief in that time that are still alive on the earth. And what happens to them according to, I think it's Revelation 19, where it talks about the birds of the air will be gathered for the great feast of God, the great supper of God, it's called. Remember? (laughs) That's right, and that's, that's exactly right. So that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the time frame when Jesus comes back. There ha- will have been on the earth during that time all this turmoil. Mid-trib we know according to other passages, Matthew 24 in particular, that it says that on that day do not go back. And this is the day that Daniel speaks of in that day. And, and, he, and Matthew 24 gives you a better detail on that just in case you need to
1: Mhm. He he's not talking about when he's coming back to help Israel. That has to be or other
0: people in the world is he talking about? Okay. What do you see? what okay. Go back up to 33 first of all. He says, "Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. In other words, his old life. And then the, the examples were given about, for instance, with Lot and how Lot's wife looked back. So that's keeping his life. If you want to keep your life like Lot's wife wanted to, you're going to lose it, right? So I put a tombstone over the word lose it. They're going to die, correct? Correct. All right? So I marked that those who are going to lose it as those who who will die. And whoever loses his life, willing to give it up, willing to be obedient to God, willing to believe God, they will preserve their life, right? So there is going to be a remnant who make it through the tribulation, who persevere to the end and they will be saved. Who are they? well, what about all Israel who shall be saved in that day? They will look to him in one day and be all be saved. Remember? So there's pieces of this story we're not getting, and I get it, and it all has to do with remembering your revelation study. And I am so sorry that that literally it's an impossibility to go into enough detail to give this all to you, but guess what? We're going to be doing Revelation again, Daniel and Revelation. So for those of you who have kind of forgotten the storyline and you need a refresher course, we're going to go do that. What we're going to do is when we finish Luke, we're going to do spiritual gifts. Then we begin Daniel and Revelation, unless there's an objection and somebody wants to do something else. But that's the plan at this moment because that's what was voted on previously. so, And that will be a good refresher course. It'll help you again get that timeline figured out. When do certain things happen? What's the expectation? Who does what, when, and where? And it would unfold all this. But this is the cool thing. By going back to Revelation and getting that really clarified in your mind again, when you come into a book like Luke and you read things like this, you'll understand where they fit. No, I don't. But you will. <laughs> when you... Seems to me like it's jumping around from he kind of is because he's saying the Son of Man is going to be revealed on that day and on that day is a time frame. And he's he is jumping just like he's jumping here. He went from first coming to second coming back to first coming, right? He is letting you know there is a distinction. He's not giving it in, cons- in a sequential order, but he's laying it out so that his disciples understand don't be dismayed when I don't establish my kingdom right now, you are not going to see it, but it will come. There's going to be a day, and in the day, when it happens, it will come unexpectedly to them, to those who don't know and are not watching and do not believe, and they are going to be shaken. And he says here, those who on that day, when these things are occurring, that means all the things that are occurring. So it starts with the beginning of the seven years all the way through particularly Matthew 24 right in mid-trib occurs that's when the the uh, the um, antichrist sets up uh, himself in the temple of God to be God and he demands worship they have to take the mark of the beast and so forth and and he says about that on that day and that's when he breaks his covenant remember he starts with making a seven-year covenant but then he breaks the covenant Okay, so just keep all those little pieces in mind. Understand this is talking about a time frame, and he's kind of, he's not giving it in sequential order. So when we do Revelation, which is basically two years, because we do Daniel first, and then a year and a half of the four parts of Revelation, you'll get it all little by little. You have to be really patient and persevering. But little by little, you get it all straightened out. And I can tell you, I've done it four times now. I've taught it three, and... Every time I do it, I l- I get a little bit more understanding, and so it's it's a progressive thing of learning, and you have to be patient with yourself and don't expect to get it all at once. So yes. The vulture? No. Okay. It says it represents judgment. Yes. Where there are sinners, heaven's not. That's exactly right. So let me just take you through, and let's get. I'll tell you where to put a tombstone on your paper. Will that help you a little bit? Okay, the word lose it, tombstone, because that's the dead, the people who are unbelievers. Um, the one will be taken in verse 34. The one that's going to be taken is the unbeliever, meaning they're going to die. The other is going to be left, who Israel, who in that day shall be saved, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Rapture. Nope. It's not talking about the rapture. Okay, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. It's talking about um, the people who are going to be killed. There, there's going to be a progressive thing. When Jesus comes back, there's a war, and it's the, the wine press of God that's going to be pressed, and the people are going to be killed by the tens of thousands, right? Blood is going to come up to the, horse, the, bridles, the horse's bridle. The unbelievers, huh? The Bible um, yes, it can include part of it. Yes, following Armageddon is 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 Jesus is coming, and then he wipes everyone out. Yeah, he he starts down in basically down in Jordan and works his way up. This is, this is during that time frame I have circled right there? It's it's covering the. It's kind of the whole last seven years in that day, right, when he comes. So it's making a general reference to a time frame. And there are going to be various things that are going to happen. And you have to kind of pinpoint where each one goes. The only way you're going to really get that figured out fully is having done a revelation course first. Yeah. So I did
1: look at a commentary. And basically Good. they took the I
0: know. Okay, but le- I realize I realize that's what you're saying, but that's wrong. And let me show you why. Keep, keep following my timeline. Okay, take okay. Look at the word "taken" in verse thirty-four. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken again. That's a tombstone, and the other will be left. Two men in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. Again, that's a tombstone. The ones that are taken are dead. They're going to die in the, and it, how do I know that? Because of this, and answering, they said to him, where, Lord, meaning where are they going to be taken? Right? Where are they going to be taken? Look at the question. Yeah. Okay. And what's his answer? Where the body is, there the what? The vultures will gather. So the ones that are taken, the vultures are going to be eating it's a physical death. Are you seeing it? That's why marking key words is so important in doing inductive Bible study. The question is, where, Lord? Where what? Where will they be taken? They're going to be taken to the vultures, and that's where you go to. Go give yourself a, a reference, Revelation 19, verses 17 to 19. Someone flip over and let's look at that together. 19 and 17 to 19. Somebody read it for me. Mm-hmm. If you look at right. that's right. in Syria, when they walk through, they just take people yep. so and the everybody That's right. That's, that's right. But the, and, the, and what Jesus is saying is that time, when the Son of Man comes, it's not going to be a time of peace. It's not going to be a time of, oh, how glorious he came and he set up his kingdom. No. It's going to be first a lot of death, and there's going to be all these tribulations that are going to occur, which he doesn't discuss here, but he does discuss that last battle, which is called the wine press of God. Who has that verse? Okay, Martha, Revelation 19. Okay, so and if you go back to Revelation 19 verse 11, it shows Jesus coming with his his army, us, on white horses, and he comes to to uh, tread the wine press of God, and he c- comes for battle for war. He comes with a sword to kill, and this is what he's talking about. The vultures then will gather. So those who are taken are the ones. It's physical death that they're talking about. That's why I put a tombstone on it at each time. So. I understand, Susan, that some commentaries say that, but they didn't finish reading. <laughs> but they didn't look at the question. The question is where are they taken? They're taken to death. Okay. kind of but it's it's yeah i i wouldn't hang my hat on it cuz i haven't looked at it that carefully i just looked at the time frame he's talking about a time frame what he what jesus is trying to do is to explain to them the difference between the kingdom is in your midst and the day when he comes to rule the his being in the midst he's saying i'm going to first suffer and be rejected as the son of man i came to be your king i came to undo the damage that was done in the garden of Eden. I came to restore, right, what was broken by you. And he says, but I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to have to suffer. In another passage, he's going to talk about his his suffering, but also his resurrection as the first fruits, basically, in the next chapter. But he says, the days of the Son of Man will be revealed, and in that day, so there's the, con- it's almost a contrast here. This is what's going to happen here, but here, it's going to be warfare. Well, and after verse 25, it's the result of that time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that maybe
1: you can tell us the significance of what in 34, I tell you, on that night, not the day, the night, on that night,
0: where the death and everything Okay. And what do you want? Is there a question? Uh, okay. At the same Okay, because in one day it all occurs, and in the day, and by the time night comes, it's done, and then he establishes as a kingdom. Yep, that's the end of that day. In that day, so there is a literal day when he comes with his army, and they do this sweeping. Uh, slaughter, basically the wine press of God, and a, I'm assuming at the end of that day it happens quickly. That's yes, right. That's true. Well, yeah, I don't know if it means that, but yes. So, <laughs>
1: t- technically the day begins with the
0: night. Yeah, I know it does, but I don't think that's what he meant.
1: <laughs> I just think it's all, one; it's just within
0: 24 hours. Right correct. Okay. All right. So we are done with chapter 17. We did not even reach 18, unfortunately. Now, we do not have a video to watch today, you guys, because